Do you want to be successful? Who doesn't? Our next guest is someone who knows success, has seen it, lives and breathes it in terms of who he speaks to every day, Reb Naftali Horowitz. When you hear J.P. Morgan Chase, you don't usually think from Jew climbing up the ranks, but that's what he is doing. He's advising very successful people on the best ways to invest their money, save their money, ensure their money goes to the next generation. And I had a very enlightening conversation with him here in episode two. I think you'll like it. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. This episode of Kosher Money is sponsored by livingsmarterjewish.org. Head over there for all your financial resources. You'll love them. Info at livingsmarterjewish.org. Hit them up with all your money questions. If you have any answers, feedback, things you want to see on different episodes, hit them up there and we'll do our best. Welcome. Another episode of Kosher Money. Today, we're privileged to have the one, the only, Reb Naftali Horowitz, Managing Director at J.P. Morgan Chase. And for the past 25 years, Reb Naftali has been guiding and managing investments for high net worth individuals. By the way, what is a high net worth individual? What's the... Uh, Depends who you are. For how, some people, it's somebody with $100,000. That would be considered high net worth. For somebody who's starting out of the business, perhaps. Right. Um, but generally, it's people with many millions. And they're approaching you and have... And, and what's the initial conversation? What does that look like? The initial conversation is generally, I heard about you from so-and-so or my accountant suggests that I give you a call. I need help making sense of my financial situation. That's generally how it starts. And who do you turn to when you need guidance on your own? You have a money guy, money mm. manager? I am my money manager. You are your man. And would you recommend that to people, being their own uh, money if manager? somebody's willing to do the work and uh, overcome the biases that we each have towards our own money and investments and risk, absolutely. Right. So we want to start out over here and discuss the difference between the Orthodox Jewish family's budget slash expenses and the average American family. Are they drastically different? How do you look at the two side by side? So the answer is yes, they are drastically different. Um, because if you take a typical, well, let's start with a typical non-Orthodox family, it's just smaller. Just to start, one kid, two kids, max. Um, Jewish families, Baruch Hashem, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and up. That's difference number one. Difference number two is if you're not Jewish, you can live wherever you want. Your housing costs are determined by where you choose to live. And we don't get to make those choices. We can't live in Arkansas, for example. Um, there are out-of-town communities, but... That brings all kinds of other issues. So that's a big determining factor. And cost of living, cost of housing is a big issue. Thirdly, we can't send our kids to public school. So private school is a, is, is a given. It isn't a given in the average you know, middle-income family out there. And that doesn't even include the cost of Shabbos, the cost of Yantif, um, and so on and so forth. So the answer is, without a question, our um, needs for capital are higher than the average. 
and the cost of living today versus <clears throat> 1990, 1980 for the Orthodox Jewish family, is it drastically higher? And if so, why? Well, it's drastically higher. But, well, first of all, everything is drastically higher because inflation is real. And um, the cost of living has gone up for everybody. Um, the cost of living for us has certainly gone up. I often tell my clients when I dimension or help them project retirement, mm-hmm. and I say, you know, the first thing we need to think about is inflation. And there's what the government says inflation is, which is CPI, mm-hmm. which in most instances takes out the cost of food and energy. So if you don't eat and drive a car, then 2%, 2.5%. Then there's real inflation. And then there's what I call Jewish inflation. And Jewish inflation is probably 2% higher than real inflation. And that's because everything about our lifestyle goes up more. The cost of tuition, summer camps, seminaries, look at seminaries. Um, Seminaries don't go up by 2% a year. They just don't. Neither does tuition. Neither does kosher food. And the reason is all think of us as an ecosystem. We all need more money because our families are Baruch Hashem growing. So the mashkiach earns more than a typical supervisor at any other uh, plant. And therefore, the cost of kosher food goes up quicker. The rabbeim need to earn more. The office workers need to earn more um, because their families are growing. So all that inflation ultimately gets passed down to the Jewish consumer, which is us. So our inflation is definitely at a higher rate than what's out there. Our standard of living has gone up, without a question. Uh, More people own homes today than they did in my parents' generation. More people have two cars. More people have one car. It was not that uncommon for someone not to have a car. To walk to the train Mm -hmm. and buy their groceries locally and take a car service or, oh my God, a city bus. God forbid. God forbid. Chas Right. Right. so think about what we take for granted. Air conditioning, um, it's not even bungalow colonies anymore. It's summer homes. Right. It's um, vacations. Things that became sort of standard were not standard 30 years ago. So how are people doing this? Is it, is it fueled by debt? Is it, are people just wealthier? Are they um, borrowing? Where, where's, where's this money coming from? All of the above. Um, our earning potential, Baruch Hashem, has also gone up. Um, businesses are flourishing um, online, offline. More Jewish professionals in the world than there were 20 years ago. More accountants, more lawyers, more doctors. Um, more Wall Street executives. And um, so Baruch Hashem, there is more wealth being brought into the Jewish world than there ever was. Real estate, nursing homes, Amazon, sellers, and so on. So to a certain degree, the standard of living has gone up because our incomes have gone up. And then there are those who are trying to keep up, which is a whole other discussion. But um, they're struggling. And yes, that's another thing. The accessibility of debt was not there 25 years ago. I mean, today, you can have almost zero income or very little income, and credit cards will give you fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 of lines of credit, which is ridiculous. There was no such a thing 20 years ago. Credit was not, uh, was not that accessible. Um, gemach loans, unfortunately, and so on and so forth. 
So some of it is fueled by debt, some, debt, some of it is fueled by higher incomes. But we live in a society where, like you said, debt is somewhat unavoidable, right? Or in the sense that you have credit card companies that are advertising, and <clears throat> it's so easy to get a credit card. Maybe you're paying your monthly bills the first month, second, third, but you're going to tend to start to fall behind if you, if you don't have the income to keep up. So the question here is, is debt avoidable? Absolutely, it's avoidable. Um, um, it's very simple. We have to live as though it doesn't exist. So um, no credit cards? Well, credit cards are, are a horrible instrument if you use them for, as a debt vehicle. They are the absolute worst debt vehicle. I mean, just look at the APY on it. I mean, it's like, it's insane. You're paying usury rates to a credit card company. Um, credit card is a con- should be a con- payment convenience mechanism. That's what it should be. Um, I've been married, Baruch Hashem, for 30 years. Never in the 30 years have we carried any credit card um, pay, um, balance from one month to the next. And my wife and I agreed that if it ever happened, we cut up all our credit cards the next day. So you have it on auto, auto pay auto, or? Auto pay. Auto pay. Yeah. It, it's just, it's the worst thing in the world. It's easy. It's, you see, the Rabbanu Shalom, the Rabbanu Shalom created a person, I just said this on a different podcast, with a certain aversion to parting with money. Mm-hmm. It's hard to take cash out of your wallet. It hurts, right. doesn't it? You yeah. know what I'm talking yeah. about. I like I like using the card much easier than actually going to the bank and isn't that amazing? Bills out. Isn't yeah. that crazy? You're standing in the grocery store, you have money in your wallet, and it's painful to take out your wallet, pull out the cash, and give it to the to the cashier. But it it feels like nothing to stick that card in. The Rebbeinu created a person to have an aversion to part with money. That does not extend to it. It extends somewhat to writing a check. But not as much, but it, there's almost no aversion to swiping a credit card. And you have so, all the points and the miles. Oh, of How course, can you say no to that? It's the best thing in the world, right? So, um, and you're building your credit, right? So, is that, is that somewhat of a farce? The whole uh, credit, uh, building credit, credit well, it's, scores. It's it's a way that young people fall into the credit card trap. Mm-hmm. It's why people get credit cards to begin with sometimes when maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. But but if you're disciplined, the answer is. There's two kinds of debt. There's good debt and there's bad debt. Good debt is you put money down on a house and you take a mortgage with payments that are doable. Right? It's not a ridiculous payment. You're getting money at a very, very low cost because it's, there's a lien on your house. So it's secure debt to the bank. Um, you get a tax benefit in doing it and you live in a home. And when you do a comparison between that and rental, paying rent that you never see back, building equity in a house, is a great way to accept debt. A company that borrows money to buy a fleet of trucks Mm -hmm. and they know how they're going to pay that money back, that's good debt. When you swipe a credit card, it's very simple. You are spending future money today. You're mortgaging your future today. You are spending money that you do not have. If a person lives in a world with a assume there is no such thing as debt for everyday purchases you must f- fund today with today's money 
a credit card can only be a convenience mechanism. I use credit cards all the time. It's very convenient, but I know exactly what it is. It's not using tomorrow's money. It's using today's money in a more convenient fashion. This is a discipline. Now, but what happens? I can't afford it. The answer is, what would you do if you didn't have access to debt? The answer is, you'd either do without it, you'd cut somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Or you'd figure it out. So if someone comes to that um, understanding and they had to cut some expenses in their life, uh-huh. where should they go? <clears throat> when they're looking at, you know, there's not so much a budgeting question, but it's a hey, I know I have a list of expenses. I'm not looking to sit down with a financial planner for four hours and go through every single penny. What are some of the easier expenses that someone should cut? So, it, it, again, it's going to depend on the family. and But some of the biggest money wasters, mm-hmm. as an example, is eating out, buying food, or buying ready-made food, for sure. Um, these are just absolute money wasters. Clothing, huge money waster. People go into clothing stores and they spend money that they don't have on clothing that their kids are going to outgrow. Um, it's again, this comes back to peer pressure, but when you look at the categories of what we call non-discretionary spending, right? There's discretionary spending, which is I go on vacation. Mm-hmm. That's purely discretionary. Even though the guy says, I'm burnt out, I need to go. It's discretionary. Right. We all know that. There are many, many people who never take vacation. Workaholics never take vacation, right. and somehow they're fine. right? So you look at non-discretionary um, spending, you look at the categories, and you see how much am I spending on these non-discretionary categories versus what I absolutely would need to spend. And there's always going to be places to cut. It's so easy, though, right? You have the Uber Eats, Amazon's an app. Disaster. You know, you, yeah. you, you don't have to pay now, like you said. How, it, you know, before you know it, you turn your phone on, you're on Amazon, you're on Uber Eats, you're That's hungry. Right. That's right. I don't want to have to travel down the block. It Absolutely. comes right to me. But you're going to pay the price somewhere else. That's what people don't understand. They have to start connecting the, the inconveniences of living with debt of the stresses, the sleepless nights, with that convenient click on Uber Eats, or Uber, mm-hmm. for that matter, when they can walk, take a bus, right? So nothing is for free. There's trade-offs in every decision we make. When we buy anything, there's a trade-off. Even if you're wealthy, there's a trade-off. It could be a, a tzedakah check instead of this latest gadget, it could be my grandchild's tuition instead of this latest gadget. There's always a trade-off, unless you're Jeff Bezos, perhaps. Right. But realistically, people don't think in terms of trade-offs. Now, stop and say, what will this cost me? It will cost me. It may mean that my refrigerator breaks and I don't have money to fix it. And that's a lot more painful than making yourself a tuna sandwich. A can of tuna costs a dollar sixty. Mm-hmm. Two slices of bread, twenty cents. Walk down the block, it's seven and a half dollars for the same sandwich. Just do the math. The coffee in the morning, the latte with the I must have my morning fix. Absolutely. I agree with you. 
You know what it costs it to the average person who buys a coffee every day and forget about a Danish. Cheese Danish and a coffee. It's close to five bucks. Is that more of a mentality <laughs> thing? Because no one's going to ever say, hey, I've saved you know, thousands of dollars over the years because I, I didn't go in and get a coffee. Or is it more of a mentality where if you start with the coffee and cutting back... If you start you- to be aware mm-hmm. of where and how you're spending your money and what has become second nature to you, all of these things in and of themselves are not problematic. But when you start to look across your lifestyle and you add them up, they are the cost of fixing your refrigerator. They are the cost of sending your kid to summer camp. The, ultimately, they add up. Your cost of living is higher than it needs to be and that it should be given your income. Hey, if you can afford to buy that Danish and coffee every morning, enjoy life. But many, many people have made it a habit to spend money that they can't afford to mm-hmm. because they never stop and think about it. And they, and they need to. Let's say you have a, a spouse who is stopping to think about it and knows their spouse needs to also stop and think about it. Right. But there's this, this natural friction to at least have a conversation around it. Right. How do you, and I'm sure it does come up, especially when you're dealing with... Um, individuals who are looking to get their finances in order where a spouse may not be in line or the same frame frame of uh, mind with with another spouse how do you bridge the gap there so it doesn't come up in my business because my clients are uber wealthy um it sometimes comes down to should we spend a million dollars on this summer home or not Mm -hmm. or is a million dollars too much for us Husband thinks it's it's fine. Wife is worried, right? So you have different personalities in marriages. Um, I don't do a whole lot of financial counseling with families, like budgeting. It's not, I don't have the time for this. But I know from my experiences with Masila and other organizations that when, generally speaking, when a husband and wife don't see eye to eye, there has to be a third party. There has to be an agreement that, this is important enough that we sit down and we talk it out with somebody. So very oftentimes people will call me or call others who are versed in these matters and say, we, 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 we just don't see eye to eye. Mm-hmm. It could be anything in marriage. If you don't have a mentor, a guide, a rub, or whatever it is that you can sit down and talk to, then how do you get by every impasse in marriage? So where people make mistakes are they let their spouse mm-hmm. sort of, you know, get away with stuff. And they turn their back and say, what can I do? It's no different than two people in a rowboat. And one guy says, you do what you want on your side of the rowboat. I'll do what I want on my side. And he's drilling a hole. And that's what's happening. You, you find... Whether it's the wife who has a credit card and swiping it all day, or whether it's the husband who doesn't know how to, when you have differences like that, very often times, for shalom reasons, one spouse will just ignore it, um, you know, just suppress until it becomes a massive problem and literally blows them up. And then, oftentimes, the remedies are very, very painful. Should this have been a conversation when they they were newlyweds? Is this should have been this should have been taught to them when they were in school. This should have been a conversation when they were newlyweds. This is something that parents 
both sides should be cognizant of how how our newlyweds living. And if 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 you have a child or anybody has a child who's a spendthrift, and they send them into marriage without the proper education, ten years later, guess who's going to end up picking up the pieces? Generally, parents. the parents. Yeah. Generally, the parents, and they need to know this up front. I tell people all the time, this is going to come back to you one day, when their when their house is in foreclosure, you're going to have to step up. When they can't make a bar mitzvah, you're going to have to step up. So you need to discipline your child from when they're young on the value of money and disciplined spending. Schools and yeshivas aren't teaching financial literacy today, no, right? Not. Is that a problem? For the most part. It's a very big problem. It's a huge problem. So, so where do we start? Is that, is that us going to the yeshivas, knocking on the, on the door and saying, hey, starting in fifth grade, we'd like to have some sort of financial literacy education here? And, and, sh- and I'm sure some of it's on the parents too, right? The parents have to create that frame of mind. The, the, parents, the parents have to appreciate how important it is if they press it upon the schools. Because remember, it isn't coming back to the schools. It's coming right. back to the parents. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the high school level. It could be at the, you know, like every boy and girl goes for chassan and kala classes. Mm-hmm. It could very well be, you know, household expenses and budgeting and all these types of things. People have to be educated. So many people have told me mm-hmm. if they would have been made aware of the dangers of living on debt, credit card, gemach loans, they would have been more careful. It crept up on them because they didn't realize how serious and severe it could become. So some of them are just literally unaware. Wow. And some of them have developed habits from then they were children or they watch their parents live a certain way and they just assume that this is the way people should live. You mentioned peer pressure earlier. Is peer pressure something that one can instill in their children to stay away from, not not uh, not act on it, right? It's it's very hard when when you see someone down the block um, who may have made a purchase, right. and and the kids see that kids kid gets a new toy. How do you? And this is not an Orthodox Jewish issue. Peer pressure Absolutely. is everywhere. How do you avoid it? So peer pressure is worse in our communities than it is anywhere else. Um, Why is that? Well, uh, many reasons. One reason is is that in an in a non-Jewish um, geographical setting, wealth status segregates. Mm-hmm. Right. So people in the Bronx don't get exposed to people in East Hampton. They don't see Rolls Royces and uh, Lamborghinis driving up and down the street. Right. So. There are, I mean, maybe you, you can read this in a magazine that there are people that live that way, but it's conceptual, right? And remember, a person will only feel threatened or live up to that which they see and that which they believe is meant for them, right? So that's, that's not the way we live. You have children sitting in yeshiva whose fathers make millions of dollars, and right next to them is a Rebbe's kid who has to wear hand-me-downs and they're going to the same class. They're davening in the same shul. They live on the same block, which creates a big problem. Then there's the second thing, which 
you know, maybe we don't like to talk about, but everybody wants to marry off their kids one day. And, you know, fitting in and, you know, being balabatish or call it whatever you want is perceived as a ticket to be able to do that. And so people are trying to portray something that perhaps they're not. This doesn't happen outside the Jewish world, right? So peer pressure in our world is far more complicated. Yet, the tools that we have to counter it are far more meaningful and deep. It's called Torah. It's called Ashkafa. It's called why are we on this world? Mm-hmm. It's called real self-esteem or real self-worth versus an external materialistic artificial one. So before we even get to children, how do adults deal with peer pressure? Which is one of the reasons why many people live above their means. They're trying to fit in. They're trying to impress. They're trying to give a certain impression when at home things are far from good. Nobody knows if the Range Rover you're driving is I drive eating. a Rolls Royce, by the way, but you can. But you can afford one. No, no, I, I don't drive one, and I can't <laughs> afford one. <laughs> but nobody knows, for the most part, what's really going on right. in people's lives. Right. I, I could tell you that I have people coming to me, Ellie, that there are they are beyond bankrupt, beyond. And we would never know. I was driven to the city a few weeks ago. A wealthy client of mine wanted to meet with me, and it wasn't about business. And I said, if you want to get me to the city today, I got to be picked up and driven back. I literally do not have a minute, mm-hmm. and I'm not driving my car into the city. He says, it's not a problem. One of my buddies is coming to my office. He's going to pick you up. So this huge black Range Rover pulls up, and I got in. car is gorgeous. And I'm driving to the city with the guy in. When we get there, he pulls into the lot, and the guy says there's going to be an oversized fee of whatever it was, $50 on top of whatever it costs to park. And the guy turns to me and he says, I can barely afford to fill this thing up, let alone park it. And I looked at him, I said, so why do you drive it? And he says, because everybody does. And it it is so sad to see people that are miserable, anxious, depressed, sometimes Mm panic-stricken, because they're, imagine driving... Wow. A car that costs fourteen hundred dollars a month, or whatever it's eating up in your budget, and you see the 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 um, you see the stick going to E, and you're thinking, "Oh my God, I have to, I have to fill this thing up. How am I going to fill this thing up?" Is that why everyone's moved to Teslas? They're like, "I got to get home, just charge it, <laughs> just charge yeah. it for me. Let me some electricity." Yeah, right. So, peer pressure is seen by children at home to a great degree. And if you are if you are succumbing to peer pressure, how can you expect your children not to succumb to peer pressure? I mean, you shouldn't get new sneakers because your friend did, but I should live above my means. And children are very good at picking this up. Right. So it starts with, well, the parents should not be succumbing to this. And then you have to start instilling your children in what's important in life. And that's not really important. So let's say you've overcome it, right? You're, you're, you're living a, a life somewhat void of peer pressure, and you're ready to take on a financial planner, a money manager. 
Mm-hmm. I personally, I mean, we've, I've been having conversations with a few great guests, yourself included. Okay. I wouldn't even know where to turn. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I can call my accountant, maybe ask him, maybe he knows someone, but is there a website? Is there someone, is there a, a, an organization you recommend people speak to? to, to wh- where do we start? Okay, so it depends on what you need a financial planner for. If you need to set up a basic retirement account or you need, you need help allocating your 401k as an example at work or you have ten or $20,000 to put away for, to make a wedding. So you've been disciplined, you saved up money, you got back a tax refund. Instead of splurging on it, you said, you know what? Little slimy six years old, we're going to have to make up a mitzvah. Let's, let's put this away. Okay, um, I would not recommend that that person go out and hire somebody that does something along the lines of what I do. And the reason is very simple. Anybody that will take a twenty-five dollars or $50,000 account can't be very good. <clears throat> Just that's the reality. It's funny because I, I would have thought that the answer here was definitively yes, right? If you have a few, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars extra to spare, right? Go speak to someone so exactly. that you're putting it somewhere exactly. wisely. Absolutely. I didn't say, I didn't say not to speak to someone. I said don't hire, hire someone. someone. Okay. I was listening to a, a podcast recently, and a certain rav said that every single young man should have a financial advisor that manages their money. And I was thinking, no, they shouldn't. Because the people that manage $25,000 accounts, A, cannot possibly know what they're doing. Because in my business, you would run out of capacity very quickly if you had twenty five and fifty dollars or even a $100,000 account. Anyone that's good has minimums. And those minimums are always seven figures. So somebody's saying, oh, I could take you $100,000. I'm really great at this. I've been right. doing it for 30 years. Stay away. Really? How could that be? Right? Okay. So... Hiring somebody and getting advice from somebody are two different things. I speak at seminars all the time, and in 15 minutes or less, I can explain to the world how to set up an IRA. You just go to Vanguard, you set it up, you have two choices, it's a Roth or it's a or traditional, and you don't really need to be a rocket scientist to buy Vanguard's total market index and call it a day and leave it alone and forget you did it, and it'll grow and it'll be unbelievable, and you'll beat 90% of the geniuses out there, okay? Um, Anyone that wants to do anything more than that, my recommendation is buy a book. Read. Think about it. You're going to be making hundreds of financial decisions for the rest of your life. I'm not saying a person should figure out how to fix their vacuum cleaner or their refrigerator or do an oil change. But it would behoove everybody, especially... um, the male in the household, if he's the one that's in charge of finances, or the female, if she is. So I was in charge of finances. It would behoove them to read a book on basic investing. I'm sure it's out there, investing for dummies. There's thousands of basic invest. You could read John Bogle's book. There's great books out there. Educate yourself. What is the S&P 500? Why would I own stocks? Do you know how many people I've met Put money into 401k plans and leave it in cash for 10 years. It's criminal. What's the rate of return on that? 0.02. Wow. When they, they would have just thrown a dart at the wall and picked any stock fund, they would have done, they would have compounded their money. They would have doubled or tripled it in that period of time. 
bonds. 26-year-olds that buy bond funds in their, in their 401ks because they don't have anything to pick and they pick something that's safe. You don't want to pick safety when you're 26. You want to be as aggressive as possible. So these are things that are just very simple. Very simple to learn. There's so many online tutorials. There's so much information on the internet. Go to Vanguard's website, Investopedia. It's not hard. And I'm sure you have thousands of people that just have a Chase savings account or any CDs. savings. CDs. And CDs. That's just where the money is. <clears throat> that's where the money is. And, billions, and billions sitting in CDs at banks or money market accounts. And, because and, people do not understand risk and investing. And when you factor in inflation, that money is actually losing value, right? See, I always said if I had my way, yeah. your bank statement would show the real value of your money versus the nominal. Because right. when you open up your statement a year from now and you've lost 4%, it would, you would, it would spur you to do something. But now you say, oh, it's safe. I put in 50000 It's 50100 No, it's not. It's actually forty seven to 48000 in purchasing power. And it's only been a year. Wow. Try that over five years, and you're going to start to really get panicky. Right. So let, let's say someone wanted to focus on the other side of the equation. They wanted to increase their earnings, and they wanted to take on some sort of side hustle. What's the quickest, most legitimate way? You know, I know you mentioned before the internet, Amazon, things of that nature. If someone needed the extra cash, had a few hours in the day, where should they go? What should they do? I'm not a side hustle guy. <laughs> it's like a hard question for me to answer. Um, I really can't say if a person could start an Amazon business on the side. And I don't know too many people that have done really well with side jobs. It'll supplement to some degree. You can tutor kids. Right. Um, you know, you double down in their own career you or, could, or so is so that, is that where you're advancing going advancing where you are in the workplace is a far better way than trying to find something to do on the side you can try to do something on the side in the hopes of it becoming your main profession so if you have a strategy to learn about amazon to maybe um, put some products up there part-time and see how it goes so that you can ultimately move into that that's not a bad idea. To, I've met many people who have tried to maintain a regular job and a side business. Business is an all or nothing proposition. It really is. If it doesn't ultimately consume you, it'll fail. It's one or the other. So you have to really think about it as if I'm willing to walk away from my regular job and ultimately do this full time, many, many people call me. They're doing three things at the same time. And lo and behold, none of them are really working out. So I'm not smart enough to do three things at the same time. And maybe there are people that are. But I think focus is extremely important for a person to be successful in any career. And it's really hard to focus on two things. Is that what you see with your ultra-wealthy clients where the key to their success has been focusing on one thing absolutely no question there's your career and then there could be your investment life and they don't have to be the same thing right. so 
somebody could be a doctor and you know bring in a beautiful salary each year and build a beautiful nest egg investing in real estate as an example but doctors don't open amazon businesses um that's not they they use other other vehicles to invest their money but their primary earnings come from what they focus on business you can run you can own multiple businesses right you can own seven businesses you'd have business managers in each of them in which case your primary career is the manager of your businesses but all these business owners that do that started with one business they built that up till it was self-sustaining till they had a deep bench and they can then dedicate some time to doing something else they didn't start five they didn't start medical centers right. ambulatory centers and i don't know a, a print shop all in the same day so focus 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 is very important would you say that that rich people are happier than the average or a poor person do you see do you see people come in they're more content with their lives or you know as the adage goes money doesn't buy happiness um where where do you fall in in that thought so the word happy is a it's a funny word um it's a, it's a very difficult word to even relate to i like the word contentment peace of mind um fulfillment these are happiness is would be a byproduct of that right but there are very very content people who do not have money there are people that have a lot of meaning in their life that do not have money um money as i always say it solves certain issues in life it brings a host of others money can become a detractor from the real purpose and meaning in life so i would say that contentment peace of mind joy fulfillment are very much tied to how much purpose and meaning a person has in their life versus how much money they have i w- i was looking for the answer yes like cuz society is, is so <coughs> built around money money but money but it's not but it, we know it's not true you right. don't need me to tell you it's right. not true look at the number of suicides in the wealthy world look at the number of people in hollywood or in any other profession who are divorced on drugs see therapists three times a week mm-hmm. you would think that there are no therapists in wealthy neighborhoods but that's ridiculous we know that's not true we know if you look at the um just the usage of drugs for i'm talking about medical drugs for depression anxiety and all these other things they're not higher in in poor neighborhoods they're lower now you can say cuz people can't afford it mm-hmm. but why are they even selling it all in wealthy neighborhoods and we know that it's just the reality sure okay so in my client base and in the world that I've operated which is high net worth whether it's the people in my firm whether it's the clients that I work with it's 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 the same as it is in the rest of the world the people that leverage wealth to build a meaningful purposeful life 
have a tremendous amount of peace of mind. They have a tremendous amount of meaningfulness. And they're very, very happy and joyful. Um, but I know many, many people who do not have that level of wealth that have the same level of meaning and purpose. Um, money, on the other hand, can become, in some people's minds, an end unto itself instead of a means to an end. The amass, just the amass, amassing of wealth, the hoarding of wealth, creates yaisa daiga. We know mm-hmm. that, right? More worries. Exactly, it's more worries. What do I do with it? What do I do with my children? You have to also understand that meaningfulness comes from relationships. Um, peace of mind comes from relationships. Think about it. When you're uber wealthy, you don't really have that many real relationships. And you you know that were you to be stripped of your wealth, most of the people in your life would have nothing to do with you. I'll give you a story. Yeah. When the Madoff scandal hit, Chazdei Hashem, I didn't have a single client that had money with Madoff. But I had many clients that had very close friends that had a lot of money with Madoff. I received numerous calls from people who were looking not for me for financial advice because there was nothing to give them at that point. Just how do I go on with my life? They wanted me the rabbi. They didn't want me the financial advisor. Mm -hmm. I remember having a call with a woman. She lived in Florida, West Palm Beach. She was part of a a gated, ultra-high net worth um, community, and she was a neighbor with one of my clients. She was a Jewish woman, and she called me up. She was completely broken, completely broken. She had lost everything. One day she thought she was worth $50 The next day she found out she's worth nothing. So she was suicidal. And what she described to me is uh, basically everything that she had built her life around had crumbled. Her friends all knew that she was broke. She had to sell her whatever she had there, a condo. She had to downsize. And she had to completely change her whole circle of acquaintances. And she had no choice. Maybe one friend called her once in a while or two friends called her but that was it she knew that for the reality of the rest of her life this was going to be a different world and she simply asked me how does how do i move on and i said the answer is you only have one way you have to completely redefine your who you are and what gives you self-worth everything that you had built it on until now was a house of cards you probably subconsciously knew it was a house of cards all these years because every rich person knows that if it ever happened to them, that the same thing would occur. But they continue to play the game of society. Now, you have to consciously live with it. Now, you have to realize that you were always living in a house of cards and now you're going to have to live in something other than that. And she asked me how she does that. I said, well... It has to be about your real relationships. She didn't have a husband. She was a widow. So your children, your grandchildren, and your real friends. I have a um, very, very close friend of mine who just passed away. Um, he lived in Chicago. He was a controller or a CFO for a multi-billionaire. 
And this multi-billionaire is one of the biggest philanthropists in Chicago. And when um, I went to meet this multi-billionaire, because uh, my friend wanted me to meet him, I asked him, how do you to have this amazing relationship. They were like brothers, literally like brothers. And they're actually, both their names are, um, are Michael. One's still alive, one's not. So Michael, the rich guy, says, when I went to school as a kid, my parents were so poor that on most days I couldn't bring lunch. Michael, the accountant controller, used to cut his sandwich in half and give it to me. He is the only real friend I have. Wow. And this was such a beautiful thing to see, that you can become a multi-billionaire and still have that perspective. That is my real friend. No matter what happened to me, if I lost every penny I had, if the government was after me, I know I can go to him, he'd take me in, he'd feed me, he'd shelter me, and he'd be my friend. So... Going back to meaning, mm-hmm. peace of mind, um, purpose, relationships, family, friends, community members, people who love you and respect you for who you are, not for what's in your wallet. People always say, if you were to win the lottery, would you be the happiest guy in the world? And I, and I always say, no, I would never be able to tell who my friends were. It would completely impact my relationships. It would. When someone calls me out of the blue, I would be like, oh, so this is why this guy's calling me? Now and, he's calling me. Right. And, and he might actually be calling me because he wants to say hi sincerely. I would never know. You would never know. I'd never have that uh, differentiator. So what, so what are the common themes that you've seen in, from successful people? I know you've discussed focus. But if, if someone was to evaluate a potential candidate for their business... And they said, you know what? I want to connect myself. This person's going somewhere. Right. You've seen people after they've gotten there. What's the, what's the common denominator you see, or at least in, in wealth that was attained by the individual versus handed to them or in a lottery? Um, what's the theme you see across these people? So I actually see a lot of people who are up and coming and even pre-up and coming. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Many people reach out to me for advice on which career path to choose, for example, or whether to change career paths, and so on and so forth. Um, I do, I do, uh, mm-hmm. I do a seminar every so often for sort of the key attributes of success. Um, so, just to, to name a few. Number one, you have to take full responsibility for your life. I'm out. Done. Successful people don't point fingers. Don't blame anybody. They know that it's all about what they do or they don't do. And success is up to them. They don't look for handouts. They don't look for shortcuts. They don't look for breaks. They know that it's discipline and hard work. And they are humble. They're willing to learn wherever they can get information. That is such an important foundation on which to build. Because other than that, you're going to be looking for shortcuts, and it may, you may get away with it for some time. You will not become a successful person, person trading Bitcoin. Even if you luck out and you make money doing it, 
that does not make you a successful You weren't person. saying that in 2014, right? I'm Or, saying it all the time. No, the Bitcoin. Speculating does not make you a successful person. Uh -huh. It may make you a wealthy person for some time. Probably you'll end up losing it. But it doesn't even matter. You won't even feel successful. You'll feel rich. I'm talking about real success. So real success comes when you build yourself. When you, 10 years later, are a different human being than you were. You manage your time better. You um, communicate better. You listen better. Right? You problem solve better. You think better. Right? So just your rapport building skills have gotten better. Your reputation is better. You've truly internalized the value of trustworthiness and ethics and morals. You look at the elements of successful people, the up-and-coming successful people are enamored by them. They want to become successful people, not rich people per se. Yes, wealth will, as the Hashem, come. But they're, they're attracted to wisdom. They're attracted to a higher functioning human being and they look up to them and they want to emulate them and when they come and they speak to you or they come and they interview you see a fire in their eyes which goes beyond dollars and cents those are the people that i think are different these are these are future great people which which comes along with making <clears throat> mistakes you know, there's going to be a certain level of financial adversity. You're saying that that is an important foundation to getting to where you need to go, right? You're mistakes is, if you're not making mistakes, you can't possibly be growing. People, people get all crazy about mistakes and failures. That's, of course. Every, every successful person made loads of mistakes. Loads of mistakes. You have to make mistakes. In order to grow, you have to be forging new frontiers the word new means you're going to make mistakes right. <laughs> that's it keep doing the same thing over and over every day you're not forging ahead and you're staying in your comfort zone you will not make mistakes absolutely some say Chevy Yippel Tzadik will come is that the seven falls is is what makes the person the Tzadik right correct right how does the Torah view you know we're talking about money and you know kosher right from a torah perspective sure. how does the torah um look at look at both of those well money is built into the creation just like everything else the rabbanishan created a world as i write in my book where money is a necessity obviously and that necessity came about after adam ate from the etzadas right so means that we must work and work became a mechanism for an exchange mechanism, which is money. Money is so just an exchange mechanism. So if Adam hadn't eaten from the Eitzadas, there would be no concept of money? That's correct. There would be no concept of Bezei Sapecha. But Hashem designed the world. We don't like to use the word knowing because that would intimate that perhaps Adam didn't have Bechira. And that's a topic for a shir, not a podcast. Right. But let's assume for a second that the world was designed for Adam to eat from the Eitzadas. Otherwise, it wouldn't be Chosheh Mishpat. Right? Right. And if other wouldn't eat from the Eitz Hadas, they wouldn't be Hilchas Lashon Hara. 
Because there would be no Yitzhahara for us w- to talk Lashon Hara. There wouldn't be a podcast kosher money. There wouldn't be a podcast kosher money, exactly. So the, the Rabbani Shalom created a mechanism to remedy what happened when Adam Chav ate from the Reitz Adas. And this is just for this chapter alone, not to toot my own horn, it was many people told me it was worth reading my book. Because you have What's to, the name of the book? You Revealed. And it's available on Amazon? Amazon, every Sarm store. And you recommend they pay with a debit card, not with a Debit card, cash. Cash. Yes. Go to Jeff Bezos. Definitely. Hand not, over the cash. Do not borrow money to buy right. my book. Okay. If you can't afford my book and you're going to borrow money, call me. Call him. Okay, good. Okay. So the perspective on money, Chavis Lavas talks about it at length, is a remedy for a person who walks around with the Yetzirah. Right, so we ingested the Yetzirah. Mm-hmm. The remedy now is we need to work. We need to create an exchange mechanism, which is money, so that we can buy the things that we need. And before that, everything that Adam Chava needed was in Gan Eden. Okay, now the Rebbeinu Shalom did that because the pursuit of that exchange mechanism is what's going to straighten out the crookedness of the Yetzirah. So all the things I always talk about this. All the things that make you successful in business make you successful as a person. Money provides the motivation. So maybe a guy gets up in the morning late and shows up to Shachas 15 minutes late, but he's not going to show up to his job 15 minutes late because then he's on the unemployment line. At some point, he should wake up and realize, well, if I could show up at my job promptly, shame on me that I don't show up to Shachas promptly. If I could spend an hour listening to a client and then I don't have two minutes to listen to my wife, shame on me. So think about all the skills that make you successful in business, and then think about what makes you a successful community member, father, friend, son. They're identical. They are identical. Even entrepreneurship, or the ability to be creative outside the box, is such a powerful thing when you're helping people, when you're trying to get through to your child, if you can use your creativity in the office, why shouldn't you be able to use it at home? So money is a motivating factor for a person to make more of themselves so that they can only be a more successful person and earn a greater reward in the next world. Love it, love it. So we're wrapping up over here and I'd like to end usually with an action item. If, if someone was to walk away from this podcast episode and with one concrete takeaway, what, what, as it pertains to money, what would you tell them? Start to be aware. Develop awareness. Start to connect with what you're doing. Awareness is the beginning of everything. If a person wants to stop talking Lashon Hara, the first thing you have to do is become aware of where and how they're talking Lashon Hara and why they're talking Lashon Hara, right? Mm-hmm. So that first step is always awareness. In, a, in, in my book, it's called Das. You have to place your Das on something to be able to begin to rectify it. Know that you're doing it. Become aware of where and how you're spending your money and why. Start to think about it instead of doing it without thought. Start to connect each outflow of money to a sacrifice someplace else. If you don't have money for retirement, 
and you, you're not socking money into an IRA and you're in your 20s, you're missing out on one of the greatest opportunities for compounding. Every person, the day they start working, should discipline themselves to put money into an IRA. That money should come directly out of their checking account. They should only spend the money that they have after that debit. That in and of itself, becoming aware that you're one day going to retire and that the time value of money is going to be working for you when you're young. And think about it. If I stop buying that coffee in the morning or that Danish or going out to eat or whatever it is, Uber Eats, and instead I put that money into an IRA and I compound it over the next 40, 50 years, that's an amazing trade-off. Remember, it's very hard to take anything away from somebody unless you replace it with something. So the joy of the coffee or the Uber Eats today has to be countered with another joy. That joy is knowing that one day you'll have money to retire, seeing retirement, seeing the peace of mind, the tranquility, the menuchsa nefesh of having money when you retire or when you're making a wedding. That's what's going to replace the Uber Eats. Not just, oh, I really shouldn't be spending because it's not the right thing to do. Replace it with something disciplined and prudent. In your mind, start to connect these two together, and you will see that the Yetzirah will go away. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rabbi Naftali Horowitz. Very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. See you again soon. Wow, wow, double wow. Excellent episode. Love that. If you like that or love that, we would love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Subscribe there. Follow us on Spotify. We have a YouTube channel. Search Living L'Chaim on YouTube. Today's episode was sponsored by livingsmarterjewish.org. Head over there for financial resources. You can reach out. Great bunch of people doing really great selfless things. So if you need help with your money, that's that's the place to go to. In terms of the next episode, I am super excited to delve into just how much hishtadlis one has to put into their career versus having a Muna and Betachon and believing in Hashem that He will provide. We're going to go straight into that in episode three. I think you'll like it. Until then, keep your money kosher. You can find out more about kosher money by visiting livinglechaim.com and you can see the other podcasts that we're going to have there. This podcast has been hosted by my brother, Eli Langer, produced by me, Yaakov Langer, and brought to you by Living L'Chaim, in partnership with Living Smarter Jewish, an awesome organization under the awesome umbrella of the OU. Till next time, enjoy life. Living L'Chaim.